The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, we are going to spend um, the next 45, 50 minutes or so answering some of the questions that you submitted. And just a reminder, we do this um, once a year usually as an opportunity for us, our elder team, to interact with you and answer some of the questions that you've submitted up to this point. Uh, We're all here except one, so Chris Brown has bailed on us. You can give him a hard time. <laughs> we hope he is watching. Uh, but we've uh, asked you to submit some of your key questions. Some of them are biblical questions. Some of them are theological questions. Some of them are just Christian life questions. And uh, so we have 17 of them. We're probably not going to get to all of those. And, uh, but we're going to take some time to answer as many as we can. And then if we have time, we'll see if we can engage even some questions you might have this morning um, just live. So uh, I don't know if we'll get to that. But let's dive right into this. Um, question number one, since Old Testament promises to Israel generally don't apply to today's church, how can I read those sections of Scripture for profit? Good question. So as you read the Old Testament, you're thinking this doesn't relate to the church. Me, it's written for Israel. So Bob is going to answer all of those key questions related to that issue. So Bob, how do we read the Old Testament for profit? Yeah, I was hoping uh, Chris could help me. But um, uh, So this is a great hermeneutics question, by the way. So uh, hermeneutics is just how, how do we actually study Scripture? So I really appreciate the question because built into that question is, hey, I understand that something is specifically for Israel, not for me, but if the Bible is written not to us, but for us, then there should be something beneficial there as well. So we don't want to, uh, as has been said, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, right? Like the Old Testament Uh, is not there uh, just to to kind of be a buffer, but it's there uh, for our profit. And and so I really appreciate the question. So whoever uh, submitted that, thank you. I think it's really helpful. Um, And so this could be, uh, you know, you think Todd said we had three to four minutes. I've already blew through about two of those. Um, But uh, just, you know, briefly, uh, when we see these promises that are given to Israel, they're, they're not given to us individually or us as a church but they are, there's a principle that's there. And so you can see God's character in those things. So I just grabbed a, a verse. Um, you know, you see Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. Uh, and he talks about how God's not going to leave or forsake the nation of Israel. So that's given specifically to Israel. You, you fast forward into Hebrews 13, and you see that that promise is also given to the believers that God's not going to leave us or forsake us. And he said, you know, don't love money, but be content with this. Well, what's the this? That God's not going to leave you or forsake you. Uh, And so when you you do read in the Old Testament, um, you can see that the majority, uh, I don't know all the Old Testament prophecies to Israel, so the majority of them given are then given again in the New Testament to the church, uh, or to individual believers. So we, we don't want to claim a promise that was for Israel as our own because it's not, you know, that's not how you read any letter whatsoever, right? Like if uh, your wife writes you a, a love letter, your buddy doesn't pick it up and say, hey, obviously your wife loves me because she wrote this love letter, right? Like it's to you. Uh, and so we do the same thing when we read through Scripture. And so that's why I like the question, yeah, it's for Israel But we can see God's character. Uh, We can know that God's promises are true because you can see those 
promises coming true in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Um, and then one of the added bonuses is the church gets to participate in the new covenant with Israel. We're not fulfilling it. Jeremiah 31, very specific, is given to the nation of Israel. Uh, but as a church, we get to participate in that. Uh, and so we can see God's promises coming uh, to fruition as well. So great question. If you guys have anything you want to add? I think, too, you, you begin to see how all of Scripture is connected um, as you go through the history of the Old Testament and then into the prophets and, uh, and then coming into the New Testament. It's not just a collection of books that were just kind of humdrum compiled together because they all sounded good. No, there's a, a distinct purpose. There's a redemptive plan that's going throughout that. You know, there's a, a plan for God's kingdom, for his own glory. It just goes from Genesis to Revelation. And I, I just love looking at the connected nature of Scripture as you read through the Old Testament. That's good. I think you can also see the character of God, which is unchanging, right? The same God who wrote the Old Testament wrote the New Testament. So when you see his attributes displayed in the Old Testament, you can see them displayed in the New Testament. So you can see principles of who God is um, across Old Testaments. All right, question number two. Uh, Dale, we're going to ask this one to you. Piety versus pietism. Both uh, Define both and give examples of why pietism is bad. So can you uh, help us understand what is piety, what is pietism, and where are we going to land? Yeah, piety um, is not really, there's only one, one place in the, in the New Testament that I found the actual word listed, and that's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, or in verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Uh, piety uh, is referring to, I think, godliness, living a holy and, and godly life. Uh, and you see that in other parts of the New Testament where I'll talk about living your life in godliness. And so piety itself is not a bad thing. The spiritual disciplines, which are quite often associated with pietism or piety, are, are good things. But when it gets to pietism, that can lead into legalism, into a set structure of doing things so that it becomes uh, rote, you might say, and loses its uh, ability to impact your life and the life of others because it's just a legalistic form that you do. And so pietism itself is, is bad um, in that sense. John Huss this goes back to Czechoslovakia. He was kind of the forerunner of piety or pietism uh, at that point in time. And you see that there are certain denominations, churches today, that um, are reflective of that pietism. And that's in the Moravian Church, uh, the Brethren Church, uh, even some Lutherans and Methodists um, are modern-day uh, uh, versions of pietism. I don't know if anybody else wants to fill in some things? Yeah, this 17th century movement of pietism really is you know, quietistic, kind of that extreme monk uh, way of living. And so we have to be careful about extremes that we don't um, become licentious in saying, well, I'm saved so nothing matters, or legalistic in saying that I need to be so devout to these set of rules that it becomes a human, a human set of rules. And uh, so all of that... Uh, quietistic, separatistic way of thinking can lead to some spiritual dead ends where you're, you're, uh, you're rogue outside of the church, outside of the, the gathering, and 
Um, it, can, it can lead to internal thought processes as your source of authority. Yeah, I think there's two extremes you can land on this issue. So when, when, it, when you talk about our sanctification, there's two parties involved, you and God. And both are necessary for spiritual growth. But we don't like antinomies. So we don't like when things appear contradictory. Who's in charge of my, my sanctification, me or God? Well, we don't like the, the answer is both. And so sometimes we land on one extreme where we just say God's in charge of it. That's quietism. Let go and let God. That's one extreme. And then the other extreme is, well, it's all dependent on me. That's pietism. And me thinking I have to make my own self holy and sanctified. So those are the two extremes you can run between, quietism and pietism. And we believe biblically we're to land right in the middle, right? We pursue our sanctification. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us. So you have to, ha- you have, to have a balance there. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Good question. Matt George, question number three. Uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Todd referenced Matthew 25 in his message. Uh, that's the, par- the story of the sheep and the goat judgment. Who are the least of these? Maybe you want to open your Bibles real quick to Matthew 25. The story about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And it says there, in there, it refers to the least of these. Who are the least of these brothers of mine? So if you've done these things to the least of my brothers, you've done them to me. If you haven't done these things to the least of my brothers, you haven't done them to me. So who are these least of the brothers? Are they Christians, Jews, Messianic Jews, all believers? Who are they? Well, I, I would say that the first part of that, and when you look in the immediate context, the two references are in verse 45 and verse 40. In verse 45, the reference is fairly general. Uh, He just references one of the least of these. But if you look back in verse 40, he gives his first clue when he qualifies even the least of them. He's referring to these brothers of mine. And so I think we can safely rule out based on just the immediate context that he's not really talking about just needy people in general in in this context. If you back up, Uh, in Matthew, to look at a a more expanded context, in Matthew 12, um, this is when he's speaking to crowds and his family came up and wanted to see him. And, uh, and, but Jesus answered in in Matthew 12, 48 uh, and to 50, he says, but Jesus answered uh, the one who is telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so when I put those two together, I think overall what he's getting at is the idea that he's talking about how we treat fellow believers, uh, fellow followers and disciples of Christ. Uh, And possibly even in in a more specific way in Matthew 10, when he's sending out his disciples and stuff on, on uh, missionary journeys, he says in Matthew 10, verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And I think there you even have a, a more specific example of, in a lot of cases, what he was referring to is how did you receive those people who were coming in the name of the kingdom, bringing the message of the kingdom of Christ and the, and the message of the gospel? And... The principle is how you treated those people is the same as how you are treating Christ. 
And so you could even find a more specific application to, uh, to missionaries, to workers, to preachers, and people who are sharing the news of Christ uh, and how you receive them. Uh, this is also, I think, further corroborated when you look throughout John, of course, uh, the writings of John, both the, the gospel and also the epistles, you see over and over the principle that Christians are known by the way that they love and treat one another, their fellow Christians. Um, and so I think overall that's what I would say is the, is the context of these least of these is uh, even the least significant member of the body of Christ or followers of Christ. Uh, but I would, I would qualify that with lest you think we can get away with uh, that, that those types of principles don't apply to the general needy and people in the world outside of the church, uh, I would remind you of Galatians 6, uh, 9 to 10, where it says, and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of God. So in other words, uh, when Christ comes, he's going to be able to determine who are his based on how they treated fellow believers. And that'll be the basis, in some senses, for the separation of the sheep and the goats. Good. All right, next question. You're actually in Matthew 24, or 25, so I want you to go back to Matthew 24. I'm going to take this question. Uh, Many Christians see the taken in Matthew 24, 40 to 41, as Christians being raptured. But the context seems to point to those being taken in judgment. How do you see it? All right, so here's the question. If you look at verses 40 and 41, Matthew 24, it says there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And many people read those who are taken as a reference to the rapture. And they would use this text as a support for those being taken out, raptured out of the world. I don't think that's the case. So the person who asked that question, I agree with you, it's not referring to the rapture. It's referring to those who are taken in judgment. And that's uh, what's going to happen at the second coming. That's the context of this passage. So notice back in verse 29, he's talking about the signs of the return of Christ, Verse 30, the signs of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. This is the second coming of Christ. This is when Jesus actually physically returns to earth. That's the context of this passage. Now skip down to verse 36. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be, here's the key, just like the days of Noah. So notice, Jesus is now making a correlation to the days of Noah. He's using the days of Noah as an illustration of what's going to happen when he returns. What happened in the days of Noah, verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and did what? Took them all away. What happened when they were taken away? They were taken away in judgment. The flood came, 
and the flood destroyed those people and took them away in judgment. So then notice the end of verse 39, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's drawing an analogy, a correlation. It's going to be just like that. And how's it going to be when the Son of Man returns? Verse 40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. So this is not a rapture context. This is a, a judgment. When Jesus returns, he's going to take in judgment all unbelievers. When he returns, he's going to judge all unbelievers. He will send them immediately to hell. He will kill them, then send them to hell. The ones who are left are true believers, and those will be the ones who populate the millennium. So this is not a rapture context. It's a, judge, it's a judgment context in the second coming of Christ. So I hope that answers your question. Guys, anything you want to add to that? I think it's helpful to kind of lay out what the Bible says for, uh, I use the word timeline very loosely because we don't, we don't know. I'm, I'm just saying uh, maybe chronologically would be better. So what you're talking about is you have the, you have the first, you know, the, the rapture of the church and then you have the judgment seat of Christ that comes right after that. And that's for believers. And then you have your seven years. And then what this is referencing, what you're saying, is after that seven years, smiling because we had to study this in seminary. Matt's laughing at me. It's just drilled into your mind. You can just see the picture. <laughs> and, uh, and then you have the seven years. And then you have this. Right. And so this is judgment. So the day of the Lord is always speaking of judgment in Scripture. Rapture is not speaking of judgment. It's actually speaking of bringing believers to be with Christ up in the air. And then you have the millennial kingdom. Then you have your great white throne judgment and so on and so forth. So the, the, the kind of chronological events would, biblically speaking, would put this after the rapture, after the seven years, Christ coming back to establish his millennial kingdom. Good. Okay, another question. Uh, Matt Tomlinson, what does it actually practically look like to resist temptation, to cast yourself upon the person and work of Christ? We talk about it in generalities, but how do you do this? So um, actually, I'd like um, some of the other elders to comment on this. Matt, you can answer the question, but practically and personally, I'd like to also hear from a couple of the other elders, how do you fight temptation? Uh, So let's make this real. Let's get down to the kind of the nuts and bolts of how do we as believers fight temptation? Yeah, and uh, maybe just taking one step back first before we get down into the practical, really just the, the foundations that we need to understand. First, as a believer, we need to understand the, the grace that has been given to us, the, the means of grace that we have to do this. So every single believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them that empowers them in their sanctification. And every single believer has the word of God that they can now understand because they have the mind of Christ because they have the spirit in them. They can discern spiritual truth. Every single believer can go to the Lord in prayer. It was mentioned earlier, we can approach the throne with confidence uh, for grace and mercy in time of need. Every single believer is now part of the body that comes together to build itself up in love. So we need to understand really what we have at our disposal uh, to be able to resist. Uh, and then secondly, uh, th- this is, I went through a book, uh, been through it with a few guys, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And I love the phrasing that he uses, uh, that idea of victory and defeat uh, in our sanctification. While uh, obviously it goes with many of the illustrations in scripture and we, and we do have victory, uh, we can have victory. Uh, I think that idea of defeat really there's a temptation to take the blame off of us 
uh, when we give in to temptation, where, you know, we were trying and we were trying, but we were defeated. We put in our best effort, but we just couldn't do it. But then when we understand what the, the riches we have uh, in Christ, uh, really we should be talking about it in a manner of obedience and disobedience. And that's really the, the vernacular vocab change, vocabulary change that, that he references, which I really appreciate, because um, it, it really puts it on us. Now, that's not to say that we're going to be perfect in this. It's a progression. Um, but, but there should be visible signs. There should be fruit. There should be uh, victory happening. There should be obedience because we have a changed heart through Christ. But now kind of all of that in mind, uh, what are some of the practical ways to do this? Um, you know, for me, one of the biggest ones is just, just growing in your love and trust for God. And it's the greatest and foremost commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because when that moment of temptation comes, you have to ask, do I love the Lord more than I love this sin? Or if there's a temptation to doubt in God's word, do I trust in God more than I fear this circumstance? Um, so, so really, talking about specifics, we just have to be growing in our love for the Lord. And we do that through time in the word and time in prayer. Uh, it needs to be consistent. We need to be flooding our minds, filling our hearts with the word of God. I mean, Ephesians 6, it talks about that spiritual warfare. And it goes to the word of God, to prayer, to the Holy Spirit, these means of grace. This is our armor. But we're called to put that on. We, we can't just say, yeah, I have God's word, I have prayer, I have all those things, and just expect it to passively flow into us. No, we need to open the word. We need to be filling our minds. All those commands we see, those are active commands. We're not passive participants in this. As we talked about, as Todd mentioned earlier, it's sanctification. It's a, it's a synergistic process. God works in us, but we are called to be obedient to these commands. Maybe just a couple others, and I'll let some of the elders uh, um, chime in as well, but I think fellowship with other believers, I think is just a great way. I mean, just being around other believers to, to keep yourself accountable, uh, just to be hearing of the goodness of God, to be, to be growing that in your own heart, uh, I think is wonderful. I mean, I think the, the Lord has given us the church for a purpose. It's, it's to build our, there's edification that happens in the church. Um, I think remembering what's to come, that idea of being heavenly minded, and that's First Peter 1. That's uh, what was read this morning as well. You, know, you get to uh, verses 14 to 16, and he says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, looking ahead. And then he talks about being obedient, being holy as uh, your heavenly father is holy. Uh, and then uh, you know, just being proactive. If you know the areas uh, where you are uh, most susceptible to sin, don't get close to those areas. Be building up a protection in your life. Uh, say, I, I know that I, I, I struggle in this area. I, I'm not going to get anywhere close to that because um, we don't want to be reactionary. We want we want to be proactive uh, in this in this battle against sin. And uh, just one one thing that I've read that I really love is Jonathan Edwards' uh, resolutions. I, if you have not read those, I would encourage you to read those. That is a man who is resolved to live his life for the glory of God. And as you just read that, they'll pierce your heart. They'll hurt a little bit. As you read them, uh, but just, you know, living your life as if you were about to be before the Lord this very hour, uh, it's just some of the most convicting things uh, for me personally uh, as I've read. But I don't know. Anything else? That's good, Matt. Really helpful. Could one of you maybe take us into, like, get us down into the, like, the moment itself? You are in a situation, and you are faced with a decision. Do I give in to this temptation, or do I not? So take me down into the nitty-gritty 
of a, a tempting situation and how do, you, how do you find victory in that moment? Like taking the steps that Matt's talked to us about, which are super helpful, what, what are you doing in that moment to get victory over that temptation? Yeah, I think first of all, um, you have to know that you know temptation is real. So if you're you're in that moment, then you know that you're being tempted to sin, right? So uh, you have to choose. Like it, I think oftentimes we don't realize the volitional nature. Like we we have a choice, and so you can choose to sin or choose not to sin, and that's Romans six, right? So we have been uh, crucified. So that old man has been crucified. So the beauty of being a believer is that you can actually say no to sin. Uh, now, with the, the, you know, the knowledge that we're not always going to say no to sin, we are going to fall, we are going to give in to temptation at times. Every single believer, whether you're up here on the stage or sitting down here, we all give in to it at times. Um, but as you're in the milieu, as you're, as you're in that moment, the resources that are available to you, you have to actually believe that. And it may, you know, you want to get real practical, it may be you speaking those things to yourself. You may be having uh, Bible verses that you have carried with you. You know, we all have access to, to smartphones. You've got ways you can take notes or Bible verses on there, and you put them on there because, like Matt said, you know, we want to stay away from those things that tempt us. But at the same time, you might be sitting there right now saying, I can't stay away from that thing that tempts me. It's at my job or it's, it's whatever that thing is. So that means that you need to be, as Matt also said, proactively prepared. So you have Bible verses ready to go. Um, you're taking thoughts captive, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5. Uh, you're putting off those things. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3. You're putting off those things. So you're saying, okay, I don't want to sin. These are the things that are, that are in my heart and in my mind. And so then <clears throat> now that you put that off, you're saying, what am I putting that? What am I going to put back in there now? So you've created a, a vacuum, essentially. And so now you've got your Bible verses. Some people call them warrior verses. Some people call them whatever you want to call them. It doesn't matter. But then you're saying, okay, I would rather put these verses in my mind to make sure that I don't sin uh, as opposed to just letting that sin ruminate in my mind. So we're never called to focus on our sin we're called to focus on Christ, right? Colossians 3, 1 and 2, we're heavenly minded. And so as you're in that moment, you have to have something with you ready to go. And that's when the psalmist said, your word I've hidden in my heart so I might not sin against you. And so if, if you say, hey, I've struggled to memorize Bible verses, that's fine. Write them down and take them with you. Uh, whether they're on three by five note cards, if you're old enough to remember those, or if you have a phone, uh, you can copy and paste them onto your phone, whatever those things are. So as you're in that time, you now have something tangible to fall back on, to hold on to, to believe that promise that God is actually going to see you through here and realize that when that temptation comes uh, and the sin that comes after, as James said, it can only bring death. It can't actually bring life. You want life as a believer as opposed to death for giving into that. Uh, and then conversely, if you do fall into sin and you do give in to that temptation, there is forgiveness, right? So we see First John talks about you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from unrighteousness. And so we don't walk around shameful, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have those promises as well. But in that temptation, make sure you have something with you to be able to, to combat that. Also, plan ahead. What's gonna what are you going to do? when a temptation uh, confronts you. 
plan ahead. It might be something will pop up on your computer screen. You may have to just get up and take a walk. Leave, leave the situation. Come back later. Um, get your mind off it. But yeah, plan ahead what you're going to do in, in the event of temptation. First Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There is a way to flee, and obviously not all situations you can just run from. Uh, the temptation to be angry with your spouse or your friend uh, is not an opportunity for you just to walk away every time. Uh, in those situations, I think it's a truth war. It, you are just like Christ's temptation, the external temptations he faced, uh, the opportunities he could have had to take it all and, and to meet his immediate needs and such. Uh, we have the opportunity to believe the lies that we tell ourselves or the world tells us or the opportunity to say no, what is true in this situation is, and each situation is different. So it is actually very difficult to speak specifically to every temptation. But generally, we specifically need to identify what is not true, and then identify what is true, believe it, and pray that the Lord would course correct. I'd also would just add to... When you're, especially when you're dealing with a certain, you know, you're struggling with a certain type of sin, don't stop with the surface expression of that sin. Do the hard work of diagnosing your own heart issues. What's lying underneath that? You know, as we trace the progression of, you know, the, the outward sin that's happening over here is oftentimes to be traced back to an issue of the heart. Uh, and what are those underlying heart issues uh, that are going on and attack those uh, in the same ways with, you know, identifying specific passages of Scripture that deal not only with the expression of the sin, sinful expression, but also dealing with, you know, my heart of covetousness or my discontent or my wrong view of God or whatever is going on under the surface there. Because if, if I'm constantly just trying to uh, constrain my outward behavior in a certain way, I'm not really dealing with the underlying cause of that sin. So it requires, you know, extra hard work to diagnose the heart issues, but that's another critical thing. That's really good, guys. And I hope what you're hearing is a common denominator in all of these answers. You're going to win or lose the battle with sin and temptation in your heart and mind. That, that's what it comes down to. You and I, we all, all of us are the same. We're going to win or lose it right here in our, in our minds, and our hearts. So in that moment, here's what I was trying to get at, and you guys all got there. In that exact moment, when I'm faced with a decision, am I going to give in to that temptation or not? I've got a choice that I'm going to give into it or not, and it's going to be one in my heart or my mind. And so all of that Bible study, prayer, walking with the Lord, all that you're doing in the Christian life is to be brought to bear on that exact moment. And so that's where communing with Christ, loving Christ, you're going to bring that all to bear in that exact moment. And uh, Lord willing, you're going to choose in your heart and mind by the power of his word through the Holy Spirit to run from that temptation. 
Um, but it is an internal war. It's an internal battle that you're going to have to win at the heart level. Um, and that's where loving Christ and filling your mind and heart with him and who he is and his word is, is going to help you in that battle. So that's very practical. I hope that's helpful. We'd love to flesh that out a little bit more uh, with you um, in person if you'd like to. A few more questions here, uh, Mike. In a recent conversation, the person was talking about whether or not we can question if someone is saved. The person said that someone could trust Christ as their Savior and then never show any outward proof that they are saved. Then we are not to question if they are saved. If we do, then we're just basing their salvation on works. What say you? I say that's a tough call. But, <laughs> yeah, really. However, in, in view of the uh, scriptures, there's many ways that we can take a look at and assess the situation. Uh, let me just start off with this one in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if you're in Christ, all things have become new. In the oldest passed away, everything has become new. Uh, you should be on a new path. And if that is not evident in your life, even though you're not going to become perfect, uh, none of us up here are perfect either, so it doesn't happen overnight by any means, but at the same time, there should be some indication that you have become a true believer. And there are many passages in the Bible that can point us that way, and what are the desires of your heart? Do you recognize sin in your life, and you're willing to confess it? Uh, you know, you could walk right through the uh, letter of First John, and you could say, okay, Am I willing to confess sin and say, yes, I'm a sinner. I do need to confess my sin. I do need to walk away from that. Do I love the world? Uh, am I more interested in what the world gives to me than what the Lord gives to me? Do I love other believers? You know, Christ said that back in uh, John 13, 34, and 35. They were to love one another, and that's how the world will know that we're really his disciples. But there are other things that are in here. Let's see. Um, Mike, and, can, I, can I interrupt real quick? So there's a, there's a part of this question that says that a person could be trusting Christ as their Savior and never show any outward proof that they're saved. Is that a true statement or not? Oh, all right. So I got to really focus on the answer, don't I? No, you're doing great. Oh, all right. You're doing great. I just want to, is that a true statement? A person could come to Christ and never show any proof that they're saved. You know, uh, the reason I'm going to kind of, uh, I hope this isn't seen as waffling on that issue. I want to go back to what uh, you've talked about in the uh, Matthew 13 parables. Yeah. And you've got people, you know, the, the tares and the wheat, and they're both growing together. And initially, they look so similar that you can't tell them apart. So uh, can somebody appear like they're a believer and they're not? That is certainly true. And so it's hard to tell the difference initially. So there should be some evidence that they are starting to grow, and time will tell whether they're actually a tear or, or part of the wheat. And it would be part of the uh, reaping that the Lord is going to do. So the, the, seed, the seed is sown in there, and there's different responses. But in, initially, it, you can look, and you can't tell the difference. Uh, you know, and everybody, and somebody alluded to this already uh, that in your walk of sanctification, everybody doesn't get to the same place uh, immediately, and we're all on different points on the path. So somebody who's a new believer, and if they don't have good discipleship follow-up, 
that they might really, really struggle and not really have any growth for a period of time if they don't have that discipleship. So that's, that's something that's very, very important that you uh, really need to consider when you're looking at somebody's life and say, well, they don't seem to be growing or they're not showing any evidence of being a believer. Are they getting discipleship? Are they going to a good church that's teaching the word? Are they in the word daily themselves? Uh, are they getting uh, one-on-one dialogue with somebody else? I think that is so important that uh, you need to be in fellowship in a body of believers, but you also can profit greatly from one-on-one. You know, I've had some really, really growing moments for me when people one-on-one will ask me tough questions, and I look at my life and I go, oh, yeah, you know, really, that's uh, something that I was blind to, or maybe I need to be prompted to. And uh, I, I think that that's so important. But I can just say that if you're not getting a good discipleship, you're going to struggle, even though you say, well, but they're really a believer. Yes, so there should be a desire for that if it's offered. So you can help somebody in that situation. If, you, if you're not sure if they're really a believer or not, offer to work in discipleship with them, meet with them regularly for Bible study, for prayer time, for talking through some of the uh, uh, movements of growth, like uh, somebody said this a while ago about the uh, spiritual disciplines, and those are so important because you can take care of so many problems in your life if you have consistent, regular Bible study, prayer time, fellowship, uh, meeting with uh, uh, other believers. Uh, you don't want to shy away from that. I, I, there's too many shipwrecks that are out there because they stayed away from the church. And you don't want to be one of those kind of people. And I would encourage anybody that they get part of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching fellowship. Am I taking too long? <laughs> it's good, Mike. Okay, I'll stop there. Uh, thank you. I would, I would just add that infants in Christ drink milk. and They're not mature yet. They don't eat meat, as Hebrews 5 says at the end. But First uh, Peter 2 says to crave the pure milk of the word. So at least an infant believer, an immature believer, should crave the word. That's an easy litmus test of, of some fruit. Good. Very helpful. Uh, question for Kurt. I'm not sure we've ever gotten this question. This is a good one. Is creation, not creation, cremation. Is cremation considered anti-biblical or pagan? Should burial be the preferred method since it is the method that is seen in the Bible? Creation is not anti-biblical. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm supposed to keep this short, but there's quite a bit here. The, I guess how I've always understood this is cremation or any form of essentially disposal of the body after death is not going to keep someone from the resurrection, whether saved or unsaved, and it's not going to keep that body from... Um, their eternal state, so a believer isn't going to somehow have their course changed after death. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, so faith in the, the resurrection is more essential. And yet there are some things to consider and questions that um, I guess I never really asked myself, but historically we can see that Jews and Christians buried and the world uh, would... All, among other things, also burn, and uh, they would have idolatry as a part of uh, their ways of, of uh, 
recognizing the dead, and largely due to the fact that they, they don't see an afterlife um, in the same way that we do. And uh, in the last 80 years or so, cremation has increased in popularity such that it's over 50% now that, that cremate rather than bury. I think Star Wars may have something to do with that, with uh, the end of episode six and such. Um, but uh, historic, here's a little tidbit. The, the first cremation in America took place in 1876. That's not that long ago. Accompanied by readings from Charles Darwin and the Hindu scriptures. So that is a part of the history. Now, biblically, there's no command against cremation. There's no command saying you must bury. But there's many examples of burial, including Abraham taking great care to go and bury Sarah. Uh, three generations of Abraham's descendants, Rachel, Aaron, Moses was buried by God himself. We have David and Samuel and John the Baptist, Lazarus, and we assume twice, right? Uh, <laughs> probably in the same place. Stephen was the first martyr. He was buried in Acts 8-2. And then, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was prepared and then buried. So that's, the, that's often what we see in Scripture is the many examples of a preparation, a careful preparation, and then a burial in a tomb in, a, in the ground. Uh, or in a grave. So the Bible also gives a few examples of cremations. I think these are exceptions, not permissions or condemnations. And we could get into that more. Write down passages 1 Samuel 31, 8 through 13, Amos 2, 1, Amos 6. So biblically, there's not a clear-cut case where you can say no or yes, you must or you may not. Theologically, though, this is where we have to think about what we understand about God and what we understand about ourselves as people in light of God's holiness. And that's where I think our thoughts need to go to. We need to remember our holistic nature. We were made as uh, immaterial and material, or soul and body. And that's how God created man and said it was very good as a whole person. So having a holistic view of who we are should give us some indication of the value of not just the soul, the spiritual aspect that was renewed at conversion, but also the value and the dignity that we give our bodies and the, the picture that it represents of how God made us in Imago Deo, the, the image of God. Also remember Christ's example if we follow him and identifying with him in baptism, we also might identify with his uh, coming in the flesh, dwelling among us, living a full life, dying a death in the body, being buried, and then rising again. So that's the picture that we have in Christ. We might take that into consideration. We also need to remember the hope of a future bodily resurrection. This is the largest argument in history why Christians buried and didn't burn. Job says in, in uh, 1925 that he had a hope of the resurrection. He said, I myself will see him while my heart yearns within me, even after his skin has been destroyed. And, uh, and he will see God in the flesh. So that's, that's part of the theological argument. I think also we just need to remember our testimony. Things we do have meaning. The actions we take as Christians should be somewhat countercultural, and uh, and yet at the same time, I think it does not change 
or interfere with our resurrection. It doesn't change our eternal state and what is important as a faith in the resurrection. But questions to consider is what, is what meaning does it have? What's the value of the God, the way God made us? And how are we stewards or respecters of that body, which is a part of us that God's given us? But ultimately, it's a Christian liberty, and you get to choose what you decide. And so, uh, with that said, I'd like to ask the other guys to give your counsel specifically to those who have uh, seen their loved ones cremated or are maybe in the decision process of, of making that decision for, for themselves or others. Guys? Crickets. Well, I uh, have gone through the experience of burying my parents, and one of the questions that um, or comments that I would make is there is a certain amount you have to take into consideration the stewardship of your finances. My, my parents, my father, I know his funeral was like $12,000. To me, it's like $12,000 bills going down into the ground. And uh, so I think it's a consideration you have to make is do you have the finances to finance a, a, a funeral of that extent? And so I myself have decided I'm going to be cremated um, because of that was one of the main reasons is I think the stewardship of my finances requires me to uh, be careful in how I spend my money in burying me. Yeah, I think I would land where you landed and, and take Dale's consideration. It is a Christian liberty. I don't think scripture mandates one way or the other. And so I think we each have to make our own decision based on those principles and understand it is it is a Christian liberty. So um, good question. Um, some things to consider there. Let me do a couple more here, and then maybe we'll just take the last few minutes to see if you have any follow-up questions. Uh, Dale, I want to direct this next question to you. How do we practically trust God with our family size? Is it unwise to just have as many children as we should? Um, even if it's beyond our financial means, or is that a lack of trust in God and his provision to provide financially? Um, the key word there is practically. Uh, trust God. We can say a lot of things, but when it comes down to the practicality of things. But sovereignty of God, we, we, we trust the sovereignty of God in our salvation. But when it comes to so many other things in our, in our life, all of a sudden, we don't trust God with some other things. Um, one is the size of family. Now, I come from a family of six kids. And when I grew up, we constantly heard this verse from my father. Behold, children are an inheritance of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. Um, so children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a gift. And our culture today has, um, we've been, like in Romans, we've been conformed to the culture. The culture that we've all grown up in is you need to be careful how big, how big your family is because many times it's the wife and the husband, they want certain things in their life. So children are seen more of an inconvenience and a hardship. They would rather have other things. Well, that's a wrong attitude to have. Um, children are a blessing. And the Lord, 
closes wombs and he opens wombs. You see that with Abraham and Sarah, with uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. We just went through that story. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed for a child for their whole whole life, and then the Lord didn't open up Elizabeth's womb till the end, uh, towards the end of her life. So, yes, we definitely need to trust the sovereignty of God in the size of our family. And if you have a large family, the Lord will provide uh, the means to raise your kids. Um, I've seen that many times where, yeah, the, there'll be a large family. They may not have a whole lot, but I'll tell you what, you can tell there's love in the home. The children are respectful. Um, they grow up to be fine find young people and Christians. Um, so, yeah, and it's a way that we as Christians also disciple. We're commanded to disciple. Well, disciple your kids. They're your first, there's your first, you know, line of defense is discipling your kids. You look at our culture today, the, the Christians are the ones that are having the fewest kids. You look at the other religions in the world they're overpopulating with their, with their children. And that's what's going to impact our future culture. So if you want a way to impact our culture for good, have kids. Have children. And I'm glad we're part of a congregation here that has tons of kids. <laughs> um, it's really great. And uh, so, yeah, trust, trust the sovereignty of God in your size, of your size of your family. Not every family will be large. Uh, some will be small. My wife and I only had one child naturally. The other one uh, we had to adopt. But, um, and adoption's available too. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, and maybe say with that, um, when we talk about within our financial means, what, what are the means that you're discussing? Is it financial means with a particular type of lifestyle that you want to keep up? And the, the means that you want financially... I don't want to dip below a certain amount because I want these things more than I want to have a family. I think that's maybe just maybe part of the heart uh, issue to wrestle with. Am I, am I holding on to my finances in a particular manner of life that I'm accustomed to or that I desire? Uh, and then am I going to hold off on doing anything else to try and protect that? Because then that's just showing an idol of your heart. Maybe just something to consider. Good. And then just make the decision together and on your knees. Uh, Matt George, if Satan is not everywhere and is not all-knowing, how do he and the demons know how to tempt us? Is all sin a result of temptation, spiritual warfare? Are there always demons around us? Are they always possessing people, or are they sometimes floating around invisibly? So give us a <laughs> theology of demons in two minutes. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Um, <clears throat> I guess... The, the first question you raise are, how is, is he and the other demons, uh, how do they know how to tempt us? Uh, I'd just offer a couple of quick thoughts on that. Number one, uh, right in Genesis 3, the serpent is described as someone who is exceedingly crafty. He's very smart. Uh, and I would combine that with the idea that despite the fact that he isn't omniscient, he gets around. Uh, you see that uh, in Job, when he approached the throne of heaven, uh, God says to Satan, where did you come from? And Satan answered and said, from roaming around about on the earth and walking around on it. Uh, and Peter describes 
uh, our adversary, the devil, is someone who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I think largely they know how to attack specifically because they're good observers of people. And they go around the world and they're looking for opportunities. They're looking for footholds. They're looking for places where they could gain an advantage. Um, that's the, the specific tactics. In generally, the, his tactic has been the same throughout history. Uh, the general principles, we got to remember, Satan, first and foremost, isn't attacking us. He's attacking us because he's attacking God, who he sought to usurp. And so how he does this is the same as he's been doing it since Genesis chapter 3. He attacks the word of God. He denies the word of God, and he attacks God's character. And he does that in a variety of means, but when it always gets back down to it, he's trying to attack God's word and God's character. And so uh, that's essentially how he knows how to attack us. And then apart from that, his observations are just looking for specific opportunities uh, for that. Um, in terms of... Uh, you know, is all sin a result of temptation and spiritual warfare? Uh, I would say on a certain level, yes, uh, it's all related. But how you view those, define those terms, uh, I would say no in terms of if, if you're saying is all uh, sin the result of some external temptation, uh, some specific external attack of Satan or his, his demons against us, I would say no. Uh, the reason why I would say no is that Ephesians 2 says that we're hemmed in not just by Satan. We're hemmed in by the world and most of all because of us, who we are, the sin nature that we've inherited. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So we see all three of those things at work. Uh, we have a much bigger problem than just some demon out, out there uh, who we want to, oftentimes people want to see him under every circumstance, behind every rock. They want to turn over and find some specific demonic activity uh, in terms of tempting us. And I think, yes, in a general sense, they're involved in all that, right? So we have, we're immersed in a culture and in a world that is opposed to God. And the prince of that, this world system is Satan and his demons. And they're about influencing that. So in a general sense, uh, yes, they're, they're seeking those attacks, but we are immersed in this, in this world that's opposed but then apart from that, ultimately when we sin, it's a result of, it's flowing out of a heart, my heart, my sinful, fleshly heart. Uh, and apart from Christ, I'm a slave to that. I'm dead to everything else. It is totally dominating my entire being. Um, and you see... Uh, that in terms of like in James 1, right? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust is conceived, it gets birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> Satan has set up an entire world that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, which we see in 1 John. Um, and that is all around us, and it influences us. But ultimately, temptation is driven by an internal our internal sinful desires. And Satan and his demons in the world system he rules, they may bait the hook, but it's, it's my own sinful flesh that takes the bait. Uh, and so I think ultimately that's what spiritual warfare is, is about, and we need to recognize the seriousness of, of that. But we also need to remember that because of our identification as believers with Christ, we've been made new. We've been identified with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his, in his resurrection. Uh, read Ephesians 6 through 8, uh, and you see that we are not left defenseless against Satan, against the world, and even against our own flesh, uh, because we've been delivered not only from the condemnation and eternal uh, punishment for our sin, but we've been freed from its tyranny and power over us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, as we talked about earlier, we have the ability to say no to sin. We have the resources that we need in his spirit and through his word and prayer uh, to overcome sin and temptation. Um, Good, Matt. Thank yeah. you. Really helpful. Yeah, in terms of the, the last question about are, are they always possessing people, uh, I would say no. There's clear examples uh, in Scripture of uh, uh, Satan is obviously not possessing someone when he goes to the throne room of heaven. Uh, and you also see examples, for example, the demon wrestling with Michael and Daniel uh, 10. Uh, so I think it's not that demons always have to be possessing uh, people, but I would... Uh, also caveat that with the idea that when you look at the, the parable of the, or the story of the demoniac in um, Mark, Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 15, um, there seems to be a strong desire upon the parts of demons to work in and through people. Uh, they were begging the Lord not to send him, them into the abyss or just any, anywhere disembodied. They wanted to possess people. And they were even willing to enter some swine uh, to avoid that. And so they, there is, does, I would say, seem to be some sort of a desire uh, to work in and through uh, people, uh, but I don't think they're always uh, possessing people and certainly cannot possess believers because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, we're over time. I was hoping we'd have some extra time for you to ask some other questions live this morning, but uh, we will hang out here for a few minutes, and if you want to follow up on any of the questions that were asked or other ones that came up in your mind because of that, feel free to come up and uh, ask us anything. We don't have all the answers, but we believe the Word of God does, so uh, thank you so much for um, asking these questions, and uh, we want to serve you and, and minister to you, so uh, have a great rest of your Lord's Day. Like I said, there's no equipping our classes today, uh, so just enjoy some fellowship, and then if you can, stick around for our informal Fifth Sunday Fellowship, so you're dismissed.
You've been listening to presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.